0: And over time, with each of these little annihilations, you build up an image inside the body, and that's what a PET scan does. But what's fascinating about the PET scan is it allows you to see the function of the body and the function of the organs, not just take sort of a, an image of the tissue and you know the the density, um, which is really a remarkable achievement. And doing that properly took, of course, until the coalescence of the right detector type technologies, the right computing technologies, all of that stuff. But now, you know we have that as as a pretty uh, powerful tool in most hospitals to be able to use antimatter in a you know in a daily way in a hospital to actually um, try
1: and improve people's health. This is science for the people. I'm Carolyn Wilkie. Today on the show, we talk with particle physicist Susie Sheehe. She's the author of the book The Matter of Everything. It takes a tour of the past 120 years of physics, highlighting experiments that have changed our view of the stuff that forms our world. In our conversation, we'll hear fascinating stories of some of these experiments, including some that were quite adventurous. And we'll hear about a few female physicists whose work has changed how we understand matter and whose contributions have been overlooked. And if you find synchotrons, cyclotrons, and other particle accelerators a bit esoteric, we'll also learn about the ways that these instruments have touched our everyday lives. Now to our conversation. Thanks so much for joining me today, Susie. Thank you. It's great to be here. Yeah. So why don't you, before we talk about your book, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself? What work are you doing in the realm of physics?
0: Sure. Yeah. So I'm what's known as an accelerator physicist. So I design uh, machines called particle accelerators that, you know, at a basic level, just take particles from inside atoms and make them go faster, but obviously in in my work and in my research, it gets a little bit more complex than that. So what I'm really working toward at the moment in in my new lab um, is to try and shrink down the size of the machines that we use usually for cancer treatment. Um, So uh, you might not know that uh, around half of all cancer treatments use radiotherapy, and that itself uses a little particle accelerator. Um, and there's new forms of cancer treatment using heavy particles as well, um all of which require this sort of really high tech machine, uh, often very large machine, to treat cancer. So obviously, to treat more people, the name of the game would be making it smaller, cheaper, more effective. And I do that looking at the basic physics of how beams of particles behave. So that's my, my day-to-day. I like to say I, I design particle accelerators. That's my, that's my thing. Um, and I run a research group here at the University of Melbourne, where I am today. And I'm also visiting lecturer at the University of Oxford in the UK, where I spent about about the last fifteen years, um, so I have a wonderful group of graduate students and staff, uh, and I am also lucky enough to get to teach undergraduate students as well, you know, their first year physics courses. So, uh, so yeah, that's that's pretty much me at the moment.
1: Okay, great. And so, your book, um, The Matter of Everything, brings particle physics to everyone. Um, you're writing about it for lay readers. Why did you want? to bring these particular physics experiments to the general public?
0: Right. There's there's a couple of big reasons. So one was that my experience as an experimental physicist, as opposed to a theoretical physicist, um, seemed quite different to what was out there in sort of popular culture around physics. If you pick up a book, in most bookstores, I can almost guarantee you it's written by a theoretical physicist. So much so that a lot of people don't realize that there are types of physicists who aren't the ones who sit around writing down equations all the time. Mm. We're the ones building up labs and building experiments and actually testing these ideas in the real world. And so I felt, first of all, that it was really important to highlight the experimenter and their role within the history of how it is that we know about the fundamental nature of our universe. Um, So there was that as a strong drive to share with people why experiments are important, but then also to link together the parallel stories of the development in our understanding of the universe on this tiny scale and the parallel development of a whole lot of technologies and innovations that underpin our lives and that improve our lives, because people don't typically see those two stories as being intertwined, let alone dependent on each other. And working in, in my area, especially because I've covered the ground between the sort of curiosity-driven and applied research, I was able to sort of see quite clearly this interplay and realize that that was a story that I wanted more people to know about.
1: Hmm. Yeah. And what was researching this book like for you?
0: Oh, wow. Such a good, but really enjoyable process. So um, I started researching it just pre-COVID. So I had a few lovely um, bits of travel to uh, historical labs. So I went to Würzburg in Germany mm-hmm. um, and the lab there features in the opening chapter. That's w- Willem Röntgen's lab and he discovered x-rays there. And it was this Beautiful, uh, like parquet floor, old European style lab looking over vineyards. Um, I couldn't believe actually how beautiful the lab was. So I got to visit there and Manchester and a few other places. And after that, though, the the travel aspect of visiting the labs and experiments, um had to be curbed obviously so I did a lot of youtube video watching at that point um but the primary source of the stories in the book and it's very narrative driven around around the the characters and the stories um actually came from first of all reading the original research papers that they actually put out about the experiments and sometimes there's you know two or three you know not not really one definitive one so i got to delve right in to all those historical papers, which was really, um, amazing for me as a modern researcher to read papers written sort of 120 years ago, I really, really enjoyed that process. Um, and then, also digging into the autobiographies, biographies, um oral history projects, you know, anything I could get my hands on that brought these physicists to life as humans, and their lived experience was really important for me to find. Um, at some point in any writing project, you have to cut yourself off in the research process, right? i could have <laughs> I could have spent decades, I think, delving into it all, but it was really um yeah, really an enjoyable process, just gathering all of that and then crafting my narrative um through their stories.
1: Hmm, I'm sure, yeah. I can't imagine what it's like to read. I mean, reading papers that are one hundred and fifty years old and thinking about the work you do that has drawn on them in some way.
0: yeah, yeah, that was that was a beautiful sense of that of um not just, you know, these papers discovered things which now underpin uh, my own work but also just the attitudes even the writing um you know the the approach that they were taking that the sort of the sci- scientific approach they were taking and and just even the complexity of some of the experiments i remember thinking when i set out for example the experiments to um that were done in uh in manchester in in um that told us that the atom had a tiny nucleus at its center that changed our view of of uh, the structure of the atom that's typically called the gold foil experiment mm. and when you when i when i teach it even at you know, in university physics classes there's kind of this pigeon version of history that we get told or this very simplified view of how that experiment works and when i actually delve and read the research papers, not only did I find that their motivation for pursuing it originally was subtly different to what I thought, um, I thought they sort of knew what they were doing and had set it all up intentionally. And it turned out that they they were just following, you know, they'd seen something fuzzy on a a screen previously with a piece of metal in the way of an alpha particle radiation source and it had previously produced a sort of fuzzy picture. And so the um, the two researchers who set out to do this, uh, Geiger and Marsden, working under Ernest Rutherford, um, their job was basically just to sort of characterize that and to go, oh, why is this picture fuzzy? And in the end, the results that they got um, showed to them that there must be actually some tiny, small, heavy nucleus at the center of the atom, and that ended up revolutionizing our understanding of the structure of atoms. Um, but the experiment had a lot more to it um, from that initial question asking through to the conclusions that they drew. So I found it quite interesting that even when you learn physics, and I'm sure even when you learn the history of physics, you sometimes get this oversimplified view of how things actually worked. And so I've had a lot of physicists actually tell me that my book enlightened them or the story enlightened them as to what actually happened in that experiment because, uh, we sort of repeat this version of it that isn't quite true. Um, mm. so even though I'm not a, a working historian or a historian of science, I did try to be as, um, true to the real story and true to the real experiment as I could in, in describing how it worked. And, and that was probably the most challenging thing about researching the book was actually getting into the mindset of what did they actually know at this point in time? What were the questions they were asking about the universe? And what were the tools at their disposal to go about that? It's it's much more difficult to live it forward than to live it backward, right? <laughs>
1: Yeah, yeah. And I would be really curious to hear more of those stories as we go along, and especially also to hear what's going on around these researchers and the culture. Um, so yes, I'm looking forward to hearing more of that. Um, if you could sum it up briefly, just to start to answer this question that we'll continue to talk about over the this entire conversation, what has happened in the past 120 years to change our understanding of matter?
0: So really what happened um almost at the turn of the twentieth century, you know, the end at the end of the nineteenth century was that we had this huge re envisioning of how the universe works. And when you look back, you can see that even though people at that time thought that uh, physics was basically done. You know, they understood gravity, they understood um, electricity and magnetism, but they couldn't explain things like why the universe looks the way it does, um, how the sun shines. You know, any of these uh, deeper ideas that physics at the time couldn't explain. And so, what happened over the last 120 years is a complete revolution in our understanding. Of the fundamental nature of the universe, so we went from thinking, you know everything is made of atoms, and everything is relatively predictable, uh, right through the journey of understanding quantum mechanics, for example, and shifting our conception of the fundamental nature of reality. and then as as time went on further, we discovered more and more new types of particles uh, that were not predicted to be, you know and play no role in our everyday matter. So really, we discovered, that our universe is much richer and more complex than we ever could have imagined. And the journey through that uh, has been an incredibly fascinating and rewarding one, both in terms of intellectual payoff, but also in terms of the spin-offs and technologies and other things that have come from
1: that journey. Hmm. All right. So, so why start with, with Röntgen and the discovery of X-rays?
0: Yeah, so actually choosing the experiments that I was going to highlight was was really the starting point of figuring out the narrative of the book. And as someone who works in particle physics, I've always been fascinated about um, like what is matter like what is our universe made of and on you know, on a deep fundamental level and how's it all interconnected um, you know how is it that the same stuff that makes the stars or the sun um also makes you and I into you know co- cognizant beings Um, that's it's pretty incredible right so so fundamentally what, what is going on there and I think the the opening chapter and the opening experiment uses this kind of one apparatus called the cathode ray tube. It's like a glass tube with electrodes on either end and it glows and using this one simple piece of apparatus, we suddenly find two completely new things, and one is x rays, um which you've probably heard about because they go through people and can take beautiful images, and that was like a huge revolution technologically. But the other thing that's discovered with them by J.J. Thompson in the UK is the first type of subatomic particle. So, and that is the electron. Mm-hmm. So the reason I started with that is because if we're going to go on this journey through matter and what it's made of, breaking apart this ancient concept that the smallest thing in nature is an atom, um, is where we sort of had to start with the first, uh, the first particle that we now know of or the, the first particle that we discovered that's smaller than an atom. Um, and so really the journey begins there. It's like, oh, okay, there is something smaller than atoms because electrons are smaller than atoms and they appear to be present in all our different types of of matter around us. So I chose to start there because, well, quite frankly, you've got to start somewhere, but I feel like that was really the start of the revolution of modern physics and the start of particle physics is to describe our world in terms of these little little particles um which
1: yeah, which goes beyond describing it in terms of atoms, right, and that was a really big deal at the time. Do you mind saying a bit about the ideas that that ushered in and the ideas that it overturned?
0: yeah, so obviously it overturned the idea of atoms being the smallest thing in in nature, that was clear um, but the other things that it ushered in are quite fascinating, so the reaction at the time uh. J.J. Thompson, who who made this discovery, uh, later recalled that there were people in the room on the day when he sort of presented his discovery to the world, including recreating the experiments for them. Um, there were people at the time who actually thought that he was pulling their leg, like they thought um, he had made it up. He, they didn't think this could possibly be true, which for me is an interesting societal reaction that happens on a number of occasions through the book of people going, oh, wow, this is so different to our To to the knowledge that we've had for so many years and what we've believed, um, that they actually struggle at first to to come to terms with the fact that the world is different and to come to terms with what that means. And Thomson himself didn't think that there were any uses for electrons when he found them. He didn't think it would be a useful or productive thing. Really? Um, In in, yeah, well, well, that's that's how they recounted anyway. There was um in, in his lab in Cambridge, the Cavendish lab, they had this fancy annual dinner where the students and staff kind of make up songs and poems and have this, you know, like sort of fun little celebration. And there was a toast at the annual dinner and the toast was, to the electron, may it never be of use to anybody. Oh my. <laughs> Which is super cute, right? Mm-hmm. And so 20 years later, JJ J. Thompson gives another um now, you know, another lecture at the same in the same location the royal institution in london that, where he'd originally um announced his discovery of the electron and in this one he opens it going if anyone was here 20 years ago you would find it hard to believe that not only do electrons have uses but they you know they're like a whole industry now uh, just to paraphrase you know what he said um and so his understanding of electrons and how those electrons were produced in electrodes um was used by other people, um, in- including um, uh, an engineer named Forrest and uh, a few other people, to come up with the first so-called electronic devices. Um, so just to differentiate a little between electrical and electronic devices. Mm. So electrical devices, the electrons sort of travel through wires, right? They're physically travelling through, through a material. Okay. But electronic devices... Are ones in which the electrons jump out of an electrode and travel through vacuum or through a gas to some other electrode. So there's actually a movement of electrons sort of through vacuum, as it were. Um, And that's a completely different concept because it allows things to happen very, very quickly. and what that enabled was actually the first electronic devices, things like valves and triodes and things which might not mean much to you unless you sort of were a sort of radio or electronics geek. But these devices, these little bulbs, they sort of look kind of like light bulbs with extra filaments in them, um, really under pinned the the enormous electronics boom that happens. So, you know, leading to our ability to have telecommunications, to have television, to have radio, to broadcast. And you could create these little electronic bulbs that literally just controlled the flow of electrons inside them. And they could amplify things. They could produce signals in the radio frequency range. Um, they could, you know, eventually you could then control them with, with light and other things. So, um, Really, this understanding was used then by electrical engineers to create that technology, which just transformed our world in in a way that I think most people aren't familiar with thinking about. It's just like this one concept of the electron just completely revolutionized all of our technology and the way that we live. It connected the world up um, in a way that we hadn't seen before. and Basically, every electronic innovation, until we got to the point of of silicon being the the main basis of electronics, um, is based on this one fundamental discovery, and it just grew and grew in utility as people figured out the details and people figured out how to use these electrons and all those ideas came together. So it was almost like this watershed moment whereby they'd known about yeah uh, you know, electricity for a long time and uh, you know light bulbs were already working but nobody knew how how they sort of worked as it were or nobody knew that when you heat up a light bulb electrons jump out as well and so just bringing together the fundamental theory that is that's what thompson did um actually enabled uh everyone else to kind of build on that and use that and and that's where that's something that i come back to quite a bit in the book which is by digging into the fundamental aspects of our world and our reality and making discoveries there you're creating knowledge which um, compounds in utility over time. Mm -hmm. So yeah. So, I like to say that curiosity-driven research, which is the kind that we're talking about here, um, really gets more and more useful over time, whereas more directed or applied research sometimes has a more specific application. And in many ways, that's what I'm arguing for in the book is that this curiosity-driven research, we need to make sure we invest in that and we need to make sure that we value that even if at first we can't see where it might take us. And the story with the discovery of the electron, I think, is an important one in that regard.
1: Right. Yeah. So cathode ray troops gave us x-rays and opened up the atom. Um, now we know about the electron. How did physicists continue exp- continue exploring the ingredients of atoms? So, uh,
0: yeah, so that's the first couple of chapters, including the structure of the atom. Um, and then uh, as we go on further, we we start to understand things like the interactions between light and matter, mm-hmm. and we start to shift our conception on um, what is light, for example. Um, and so the initial ideas of quantum mechanics start to come through. And there's a, a lovely story of the main experiment that I highlight um, around that on a an effect called the photoelectric effect, which is where you shine light on a piece of metal and electrons jump out, and uh, the sort of quantum mechanical theory at the time had just been started to be developed by Max Planck and then Einstein picked it up and Einstein developed this theory for this photoelectric effect, um, that really took this concept of light being made of, of quanta or or particles and took it to its natural conclusion but everybody else thought he was a bit off the wall right he, he thought oh no light doesn't actually consist of particles we're just using that in a mathematical sense to make the equations work but it, it came up with some predictions and so this experimenter called Robert Milliken actually spent 12 years in the lab trying to do experiments to disprove Einstein's theory because mm. he thought the idea that light was made of particles was preposterous why <laughs> he didn't he, because uh, all the other evidence that they had was that light was made of waves because if you if you go out there and you you do experiments with light you can split it into its different colors you can refract it you can reflect it and all of those things were described really well by the wave theory of of light it had been pretty solidly accepted for a long time mm-hmm. so then this idea that actually light might consist of uh, a more Particle like nature, or yeah, you know, eventually, as we figured out, um yeah you know, well, light just is has its own nature, and sometimes it acts like a wave, and sometimes it acts like a particle, depending on how you test it, um but that is just its own nature, and concepts of waves and particles are our kind of preconception that we apply to it. Um, that's my that's my view on it. Anyway, sure. uh, (laughs) Um, so he goes out there and he does experiments for twelve years, trying to prove Einstein and uh, trying to prove Einstein wrong. And all he does is do the most detailed experiments at that time that showed that Einstein's predictions were correct and that actually light, um, in some way, this idea that light uh, is composed of these fundamental pieces or quanta, um, turns out to be supported by the theory and by the the reactions um of the light and electrons in his very very detailed experiments and again this is a way of someone not quite accepting um the radical ideas that were coming out about how the universe works but what's interesting is is something like 20 years later um millikan was awarded the nobel prize in physics partly for um for this set of experiments that he did and by then he changed his tune right by then his Nobel Prize acceptance speech is sort of like when I set out to, uh, you know, to validate Einstein's theory, um, making out as if he thought it would be true all along. But actually, when you read the original work, it really seems that he's trying to disprove it instead. And that's also a valid way for our knowledge to progress, right? Someone gets a bugbear and goes, "No, the universe can't work this way," and gets driven to spend over a decade um, trying to prove it. Uh, But then, you know, what comes out of that is, is them really uh, gathering the best evidence yet that, that the universe does work that way. So, so then we, we move sort of beyond atoms. We start understanding that things, um, both light and matter, uh, can be described as, as waves and or particles, um, either or. Uh, So things start to look a little hazier. And then, We reach um, a period where we start to realize that there's other types of particles, not just ones that make up our everyday matter or what most people talk about as matter. But there's other types of particles that appear to play no role in our everyday matter.
1: Right. So how did people first discover matter beyond the particles that, that are in atoms? So it it started with a bit of a mystery about radiation itself,
0: and this is back in the day when you know the instrumentation they were using was very simple. They were using devices called ele- electroscopes or electrometers, which, which you could basically make out of a tin can. Oh, what is it? <laughs> so yeah. it's it's basically a tin can device, and when um, an electrical charge hits the top of it, there's a gold leaf inside, um, which reacts to to the charge hitting the top of it. So you could uh, so it was used in all, all the different experiments, but you could kind of count radioactive decays that way because the particles in radioactive decay um, have, an, have an effect of, of producing charge on this device. Um, but they're pretty flimsy. Like you could literally make a tin can, get a go- piece of gold leaf and a, a sort of um you know, metal stick, as it were, in the top and seal it all up nicely. And you could use this to measure the amount of charge on something um, or measure the amount of radioactivity coming off of a, a sample, coming off of a, a radioactive um, a, so chunk of of rock even. Um, so they they used these a lot and because it was nice and cheap. Uh, but what they found was that they would always find more radiation in the environment than they were expecting. And this became a bit of a mystery as to why there seemed to be more radiation than they expected. And eventually people went um under the sea, they went into tunnels, they went up the Eiffel Tower, and they even started commandeering hot air balloons to try and measure the radiation at different um points in the in the
1: atmosphere and also underground. Right? This was a very very interesting part of your story. Do you mind or a part of your book, do you mind telling us that story about about how um about why use a hot air balloon to go up and try to measure radioactivity yeah so so when when radio when radiation and radioactive
0: substances were first discovered including by marie curie at the end of the 19th century um they found them all within um, material in the earth right so Marie Curie famously like had these tons of of pitch blend of sort of rock that she milled down to find um the radium and polonium that she ended up ended up discovering. Um so they thought okay radioactive there are radioactive elements in the earth. And so the theory was that if there's more radiation than expected they should be able to to test that it's coming from the Earth by either moving away from the Earth, so going up into the atmosphere, or moving down further deeper into the Earth, so going under the sea or going into a train tunnel or underground. And by doing a systematic measurement, they thought that they would be able to, you know, at least calibrate this extra radiation and go, oh, okay, there's just, you know, there's just some extra radiation coming from the Earth. And what they found was that their results never gave them the, the results never correlated with that. It was a bit confusing for them. At least when the guy went up the Eiffel Tower, he found um, actually more radiation at the top of the Eiffel Tower than at the bottom, which is the opposite of what he expected. Hmm. And so eventually, um, with the hot air balloon journeys up into the atmosphere, they realized that these electroscopes they were using really weren't suited for the task, right? The, mm. at, at different air pressure, there would spring air leaks and just the the vibration and things would mean they were very unreliable to make the measurement. And so there was a new type of electroscope invented um, by uh, Theodore Wolfe, who was um, actually originally a Jesuit priest, but he um, invented this new type of better sealed electroscope that would deal with the conditions better. And then this Austrian um, physicist named Victor Hess sort of saw his opportunity that no one had taken that fancy electroscope uh, up in a balloon to make this measurement so he commandeered a balloon um, and set off from the fields outside of Vienna and uh, he did a, about five or six balloon flights in the end going up to I think it's about five thousand feet and it's just wrapped in a you know wrapped in his coat and it must have been absolutely freezing but somehow he manages to to take a set of systematic measurements while some somebody else flies the balloon um, and he manages to to establish that the radiation first decreases as you go up into the atmosphere and then as he went further and further up it increases and increases and increases and the only conclusion he could draw from this and and we now know it's the correct one is that there's a kind of radiation raining down on us from space all the time called cosmic rays mm-hmm. and so he even sort of thought well maybe these cosmic rays are coming from the sun. Like, what, what, what is this radiation? Where does it come from? And so he did another balloon flight, even during a solar eclipse, to establish that, oh, no, the amount of radiation stays about the same, even during a solar eclipse. So that allowed him to establish that it really is coming mostly from um, elsewhere in space, you know, just from... Out of space, and this was a mystery for a long, long time. And it actually, to this day, remains a mystery about how some of those very high energy particles um, are actually being formed and accelerated out in in deep space, and then um, you know just heading through the universe at all times. So suddenly, the universe is no longer this sort of nice static thing that we look up at. Right? There's violent, high energy charged particles flying through it all the time and through us, and we would have had no idea except for people being curious enough to go up and take these measurements and understanding what cosmic rays consisted of really gave us the next big steps into the journey of understanding particle physics.
1: Right. And so is this where muons come in? That is exactly, yes. <laughs> That's
0: exactly where muons come in. So yes, yeah, so around the same time, um, a Scottish physicist invented a device called a cloud chamber, which um, sort of allowed people for the first time to actually see the passage of charged particles through this like vapor inside this glass chamber that he invented and mm-hmm. if you applied a magnet to that as well it would bend the charged particles as they went through and you could take photographs of them and you know thousands of photographs and pour through all the photographs and and see the tracks of these um charged particles to try and learn more about them and that's exactly what people people did
1: it sounds like a beautiful experiment.
0: Ah, oh, it's absolutely—it's yeah—it's absolutely stunning. It's really—I you can actually make one at home. Um, there's instructions online if you Google how to make a cloud chamber, and they are absolutely mesmerizing. You sort of watch as this vapor falls down, and then these little white tracks appear, mm-hmm. um, yeah, seemingly from nowhere. But we now know that a lot of them—even if you make one at home—some of them will be from the radioactive elements in the earth around you. But just some of them will be will be from out of space, from these cosmic rays from out of space, which come down to our atmosphere, interact in our atmosphere, and then produce showers of secondary particles. And that's how this particle that you've mentioned, the muon, which is like a heavier version of the electron, that's how those are made. But the first one to be found was actually not the muon. It was actually a particle called a positron, which is the first particle that we found um, that represents antimatter. So like our normal matter, there's actually an oppositely charged version of it called antimatter. Now, we don't see it around us very often because our daily lives consist of normal matter. But in the in the equations, um, well, we can now go back and say that the equations actually predicted that there would be this equal and opposite type of matter. But again, no one thought that it really existed. And so the experimenter that went out um, to try and learn more about cosmic rays was called Carl Anderson, and mm-hmm. he was working in California at the time. And he, it was the, the, um, the Great Depression. And so he built this cloud chamber and this huge clunky magnet around it that would, um, every time the camera went off and the magnet was switched on, there'd be this like huge bang sound that would ring out across the campus of Caltech where he was working. And so the way the experiment would work is they would leave this device sort of taking image after image um, through some some time period and process the photographs and then look through them for, for anything they could see. And he eventually lugged this huge experiment up a mountain and um, had many mishaps along the way and had to buy a new truck, etc. Uh, you know, it was really a really trying experiment. So they're in this cold, inhospitable environment on the top of a mountain taking images with this huge experiment for about six weeks. And what he found was that every now and then there'd be a photograph where there was a particle that looked like it was an electron, which he was familiar with and could identify, but it was bending the wrong way in the magnetic field. Mm -hmm. And by the time he gathered enough evidence, he was able to conclude that these were were just like electrons, but oppositely charged, and he called them positrons. So it was his first particles of antimatter. And what fascinates me is that he didn't know that three years earlier there was a theorist named Paul Dirac who had actually predicted these particles. He hadn't read those papers because he was too busy um, building his experiment. Uh, so he actually found this completely independently um, of the theorist who who predicted it. Um, and it's not like the theorist sort of. Pushed everyone to go out and search for it either because he didn't think they were real, and it turned out that they were. And then just a couple of years later, about f- four years later, his former student went out, and did a similar experiment, and discovered uh, this particle that was again like an electron but heavier, um, about two hundred times heavier. And that's called that's called the muon. And so suddenly, and the reaction to that was was quite interesting because there was a, a famous theorist at the time who literally just said, "Who who ordered that?" You know, it was so. Unpredicted that there would be another sort of generation of particles, heavier versions, that decay down to their lighter variants. And so we reached this period where it's like, okay, there's all these mysteries coming up now. We thought We thought that by understanding cosmic rays we would sort of put all the pieces together of of understanding, and instead, what happened was that more and more new particles that they didn't understand started appearing in their experiments, and it became a a real rapid period of discovery.
1: Okay. Yeah. Thanks for, for sharing that. And also, um, so I think, you know, for those of us who aren't used to hearing about muons and positrons, do you mind sharing how those particles are actually used? Like people actually use them in applications today. Yeah, we do. Um, so muons
0: uh, muons are an interesting one because they travel through materials uh, much more easily, so they travel through rock quite easily without decaying. And what that led to was our ability to put detectors for muons either side of, say, a volcano or a pyramid, and actually use them to create like a giant x-ray scan of the pyramid or the volcano. Um, And this is a really cool project um, that has been building over time. But I think it was in about the 1970s, they actually found a new uh, sort of chamber within uh, Khufu's Great Pyramid in Egypt using this technique. Uh, So it's really cool. And now they can do it in a way that um, is time resolved. So instead of taking a static image, they can sort of take a moving image. And that's allowed researchers in Japan, for example, to actually see the movement of magma um, in a volcano in a way that you can't image in any any other way. So that one's really cool. Um, positrons are actually emitted in a type of radioactive decay called beta decay, which we already knew about, but they didn't at the time know that there was a process that actually emitted positrons. And so it turns out you can take some radioactive substance, usually fluorine 18, and um, add it to a, a sugary liquid and use that to trace out metabolic pathways in the body. And that's exactly what happens if you go for a PET scan in the hospital. It's called positron emission tomography. And what happens there is it's like a it's like a sci-fi novel, right? The, this uh, positron-emitting substance, and it's a very low level of positron-emitting because you don't need many of them. This is traced out into parts of the body that have Highly metabolic regions. So if you have, you know, heart problem or uh, some kind of cancer is growing, um, or even in the thyroid, the activity of the thyroid, um, these substances will collect there because they're highly sugary, and in that region, the positron is emitted and it will find whatever the nearby electron is. And given that we're made of matter which has electrons in it, it'll find one pretty quickly, and then the positron and electron actually annihilate and produce energy in the form of photons, particles of light. And because of the way the physics works, there's two photons emitted and they go out in opposite directions. And so you place detectors, or we place detectors, around the patient to detect these Photons as they as they come out, and over time, with each of these little annihilations, you build up an image inside the body, and that's what a PET scan does. But what's fascinating about the PET scan is it allows you to see the function of the body and the function of the organs, not just take sort of a, an image of the tissue and you know the the density, um, which is really a remarkable achievement. And doing that properly took, of course, until the coalescence of the right detector type. Technologies, the right computing technologies, all of that stuff. But now, you know, we have that as as a pretty uh, powerful tool in most hospitals to be able to use antimatter in a you know in a daily way in a hospital to actually um, try and improve people's health. Which is that pretty is cool. Really neat.
1: Yeah. So positrons effect can be part of people's everyday lives, and muons can image larger than life objects. Yeah, it's really neat. How did the first particle accelerator come to be?
0: So at the time in about the late nine sorry the late 1920s um there was this real push to try and understand the atom and especially the nucleus of the atom in more detail and there was only so much you could do with natural radioactive substances because well first of all they decay away over time which is something that they discovered um but also they sort of spray out their radioactive particles in all different directions which makes it really difficult to do a neat and directed experiment with them if you're looking at something that's that's tiny. Um, and so what they realised they needed was a s- controllable source of high-energy particles uh, where they could have lots and lots of them in a very controlled way in in an experiment. And so people set out trying to, to do this, and the main thing they needed to do was actually to generate very high voltages. Um, and that was kind of fascinating um, to me to discover all the many interesting ways in which people tried to generate high voltages and accelerate particles. So there were some some kind of obvious ones, like um, people use Tesla coils, which generate a high voltage, and they tried that way. Although I'm not aware of any successful um, particle acceleration that happened. They sure made a lot of sparks. Um, and people use transformers, which is what was eventually uh, kind of the most successful method but there were some German researchers as well who um, tried to harness lightning uh, to actually uh, capture the high voltage um, in lightning and use that to accelerate particles Uh, their experiment unfortunately came to a a bit of a grisly end when one of the researchers um, fell had an an accident and fell into the ravine that they were working in and unfortunately passed away Um, but I'm I'm I I think um that was the the accident did not involve him being hit by lightning I think it was unfortunately just like a a slip of the foot and 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 falling um so there was this kind of really interesting period in the 1920s where there was this race to build the first particle accelerators with people using all sorts of different methods and in the UK um two researchers called Cockcroft and Walton John Cockcroft and Ernest Walton uh worked together under Ernest Rutherford who was the head of the lab at the Cavendish lab in the Cambridge at the time and they uh yeah they set about building a protonic ex- accelerator for the first time. Uh, And they were the ones who were were really successful for the first time in making an accelerator which could accelerate protons to a few hundred kilo electron volts, is the sort of energy unit that we use. So if you were to take um, one volt and put uh, a singly charged particle through one volt, um, then we call that one electron volt of energy. Um, and so they were up in the the hundreds of thousands and you know, eventually into the millions of electron volts because to get into the nucleus, um, they knew that they would have to have this projectile with a very high speed, um, and they predicted that they would need around a million volts in order to get it up to speed, to smash it into the atom, to do anything interesting. Um, And uh, it turned out, because of quantum mechanics, they actually only needed a slightly lower voltage, so in the few hundred kilo-electron volt range, um, so a few hundred thousand electron volts. Um, And this is kind of a funny thing in the story, because it turned out that they could have had their success with smashing atoms for the first time, which they achieved in 1932. They could have actually done it two or three years earlier, um, but they had the wrong measurement equipment so they didn't actually see the reaction happening but eventually when it, when it yeah eventually when it, so they rebuilt the whole accelerator over the next three years before they actually had their success so it's kind of amazing that no one else got there first but the the day when they did it the, the student and Ernest Walton was actually a student at the time but he did most of the hands-on work with this machine and you can imagine right this this old lab this um, huge piece of apparatus with all these like uh, metal bulbs and this Big transformer and these glass tubes that go around things to try and stop things sparking now in nowadays, you know we I can say a million volts, and it doesn't mean much to people, but if you ever walked underneath the electricity pylons, they carry about three hundred thousand volts okay. um, and they're pretty scary mm-hmm. to go near right? like you wouldn't you wouldn't want to be in a lab with one of those. you'd be, be pretty frightened of it, and at this time, you have to remember that like homes are only just getting electrified like electricity is a new and scary concept so they were actually more scared of the electricity than they were about the potential radiation that they might produce in the lab um but you can imagine sitting in this lab and they have this little control panel desk and that runs cables across to all of these big pieces of equipment um and so on the day they'd got it ernest walton had had ramped things up and turned up all the dials so that the the um Electrical voltage came up, and you can imagine it sort of popping and crackling in the background, which is how it would have sounded and He's like, "Okay, well, things seem to be working today, so I'm going to go uh I'm, I'm going to turn things on I'm going to turn the beam on, and I'm going to put a little sample underneath the beam um to see uh, whether or not something happens and he crawled across the room into this wooden box, which they'd set up underneath the accelerator, and inside that they had a screen um. And it's a fluorescent screen which lights up when, when particles hit it, and you can just sort of imagine him pulling the little curtain across and sitting there in the dark. And he he recalled later, like he instantly knew that things were mm-hmm. working because this screen that they put in there was just lighting up with so many so many hits um, of what he presumed, and he was right, were alpha particles, which are um, so what was happening. So they're he- like helium nuclei, the nuclei of helium atoms. So um, uh yeah, lightweight, lightweight atoms. Yeah, so what happened was the protons were coming down from the accelerator, hitting this little target made of lithium. Um, and then the atoms of lithium uh were transforming and disintegrating into two particles, two two helium or alpha particles. Um and uh so the lithium atoms disappeared entirely. Um and what was left and the protons disappeared. And what was left was these two um two alpha particles that that he was observing. And he he couldn't believe it. You know, he was it must have been the the most exciting moment. And the only conclusion from that was that they had managed to successfully um split the mm-hmm. atom, like to split the lithium um split the lithium nucleus uh, and that was uh, an extremely exciting point for them. You know, they dragged in the head of the lab, Ernest Rutherford, and he's this really tall, loud bloke and they they bundle him into this box under the accelerators so that he can he can watch and he's sort of sitting there with his his knees up around his ears trying to fit in and, and watch this little screen and so he confirms it and then they swear each other to secrecy for about a week while they write the first paper on it um, to get it out. Uh, you know, to to stamp their their scientific um, mark on it, and uh, yeah, I I think I think we would all say that the world was never the same again after they successfully split the atom and understood how to do that for the first right. time.
1: So much of the rest of your book after that point is a tour of different types of particle accelerators and a lot of the really interesting work that comes next. Maybe you can tell us really briefly what what's a cyclotron, what's a synchrotron, what's a linear accelerator. <laughs> Um, why so many different types of accelerators? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I guess that's the thing. There was a lot of
0: innovation through, especially the sort of 40s, 50s, 60s, mm-hmm. 60s um, with different ways with which to accelerate particles um, to higher and higher energies. So those first machines were quite limited. Because you could only reach a certain voltage level before the electrical breakdown happened and everything sparked and you could no longer, you know, you couldn't go up in further in energy. So the new ways that were created of accelerating particles found clever different ways to reuse voltages um and to send particles around in circles. That's the cyclotron. Um, and then Found ways when those got too big and heavy because the magnets would be really, really big. We found ways to accelerate particles in a ring of magnets instead, and that one's called a synchrotron. Um, And a linear accelerator is just an accelerator in literally a straight line, as the the name um, as the name implies. And over the years, yeah, all these different technologies were invented, and some of them co-opted or coalesced concepts from other things so for example the linear accelerators got a real boost when um the after the world war ii radar project technology technologies were invented to make high power um, radio frequency waves which were used in radar projects but they also enabled uh, a new generation of particle accelerators which are the ones that we typically find in hospitals now that are used to treat cancer so there's this interesting journey then of this sort of Technologies being pushing the limits for higher and higher energies for physics experiments to discover new particles and discover new things about our world. Um, and then that that coalescing story uh, with the development of different technologies and spin outs into other areas of our society. So yeah, it was basically a it was kind of like a a race really, to build the biggest accelerator, and there was a lot of um, there was definitely a lot of tension between, for example, the u s and Russia in building the biggest accelerator and reaching the highest energy. Um, So in 1959, when there was a big machine built at CERN in Europe, so eventually the European nations banded together to build their own big particle physics lab which we now call call CERN but its remit is science for peace so they did this post-world war ii because each individual nation couldn't compete with say the u.s in terms of building um these big labs so they banded together and decided to collaborate um to work towards fundamental scientific topics that had nothing to do with you know national security or defense in fact they're not allowed to work on on um uh, on topics outside of that remit uh and so they built a big machine called the p s. Great name, but no, it's called the proton synchrotron. That's <laughs> We're not very good at naming things, are we? But it's called the proton synchrotron. Um, and there was a lovely moment there where the person who started up that machine, um his name was John Adams, um, uh, not to be confused with the u s. President John Adams. <laughs> but he uh, he had this um a bottle of vodka that he'd been given by the the Russian um, teams who previ- had the previous highest energy machine. And they'd sent that bottle to him in advance of, of him starting up the, the new machine because he was about to take the world energy record. And so he... Um, he, they, they obviously drank the vodka, and then they printed out uh, an image from their machine that showed that they had this really high energy. And they coiled up the the picture of the image, put it back in the bottle, and then sent it back to uh, to Russia to say, "Yep, okay, we've we've taken a high energy record." Um, so even though there was like this competitive spirit between different nations and different parts of the world, there was also always that collaborative spirit of um, knowing that that between between them and between their nations, they were always making this progress towards
1: new knowledge. We've talked about many of the um, men who were involved with this research, many of the physicists who were involved with this research, but you also came across the stories of many women who haven't always been recognized. Will you share some of those now? Right. Yeah, this is one of the most rewarding parts of the research process of the book for me because in a lot of
0: the experiments I researched, I didn't know that there were Women working on them either, Um, and I'd I'd only heard of a few of these these women who came up. So one of the early ones, her name was Harriet Brooks. She worked at um, Montreal in Montreal um, with Ernest Rutherford, and she started her graduate degree in about 1899. So this is going a long way back. Um, And I actually found her because I was looking at photographs from uh, Ernest Rutherford's days at Montreal, was his first research group, and there's this, you know, among these these men in their big coats and hats and scarves and things because it was really cold in the photograph, clearly. Mm. There's this absolutely stunning just um, image of this woman looking out at the camera Uh, and and she she just jumps right out at you and I couldn't help but um, learn more about her. Uh, And she has a a fascinating story. So she contributed um, a lot to the understanding of radioactive decay in the experiments that she was doing uh, with Ernest Rutherford and uh, Frederick Soddy. Um, in Montreal, and she later went to the UK and even worked with Marie Curie as well in, in Paris, I think. Um, but she eventually ended up leaving physics despite having made these wonderful contributions. Um, she actually almost left earlier in her career because someone uh, she got engaged to be married. And it, until about, it was the 60s, I think, in Canada, but it was the 70s in other countries, if a woman got married, um, she had to quit her job and of course uh, harriet brooks you know was very against this and actually sort of spoke out against it which was pretty daring at, you know in, in i think about 1905 at this point in time um, but she decided to break off the engagement and continue physics uh, which s- surprised uh, surprised me given the societal pressures at the time um but when she reached the age of about 30 so this is some years later um the same thing happened again and someone approached her and um she clearly uh, was really feeling that pressure of society's expectations to be married and have children, um, and so she actually turned down an offer at that point from Ernest Rutherford to go and work with him in the UK. Um, and he you know, he writes this glowing reference about her that she's the most preeminent woman in, in you know in radiation after Marie Curie. Uh, you know she's a really really top researcher, and um, I mean unfortunately for us i think uh but obviously it was a decision she made and i think she was quite happy with it she decided okay i'm going to this is the time now i'm going to move back to canada i'm going to get married and she had three children and as far as we know she never worked in in physics again um so that's our loss um but thankfully now at least those really structural uh barriers and rules around women working in physics um have now at least uh, come down so it's now uh, you know you no longer have to quit your job when you get married, which is great, but of course there's other barriers that people face um today, but so that was one. That's probably the mm-hmm. earliest example I found was Harriet Brooks. And then there's some later examples, including um, Marietta Blau, who invented a type of photographic material particle detector that was that was used for many, many discoveries. A bunch of other people won Nobel Prizes based um, on that work, but not her, mm-hmm. even though she was nominated a number of times. Um, and I also found within her story, I found a reference to uh, an in- Uh, female researcher whose name is Biba Chowdhury, and she's the one who um, I'd I'd never heard of her name before. I'd heard of the names Mm. of the others, though I didn't know their stories, but I'd never come across Biba Chowdhury before. So I tracked down a short biography that had been written about her, uh, which was quite difficult during COVID times, but I got there. Um, And she has has a wonderful story and she actually discovered um, two different types of particles, the muon which we've talked about, and Another type and she could she could tell there were two different types, but she couldn't she couldn't tease out their properties exactly. The other type of particle we now call the pion. Um and Unfortunately, because she was working in India at the time, she didn't have access to the highest quality photographic uh, emulsions, they were called, and she had sort of a secondary quality of emulsions. But despite that, she did such great experiments with them, um, being able to tell that there were these two different types of particles, that she actually published it as first-authored papers in in Nature, which is like the preeminent journal in the field. She was not obscure, right? right? Like. (laughs) <laughs> she she was publishing in the main journal in the field, and yet a number of years later in Bristol, Cecil Powell, who was generally as as far as I can make out a, a really liberal guy, you know, he had many women working in his labs, and he actually acknowledged that Bieber Chowdhury had made this discovery first, but then he made the sort of definitive discovery of the pion um, using the highest quality emulsions that he could get at the time. And when the Nobel Prize Committee awarded the prize, they awarded it only to Mm. him for that discovery. Um, And in fact, I mean, it almost, I I don't like to think that someone has cherry-picked things, but even though he had referenced Biba Chattery's work previously, all of the papers that were cited in his prize apparently were the ones where she wasn't mentioned. Mm. Uh, Now, this is something that someone else claimed, and I haven't fact-checked every single paper to see to see that. Um, But I was like, wow, people will really uh, go to an extent to diminish or forget about, sort of active forget about the contributions of women. So much so, you know, in terms of this reallocation of, um, of women's contributions in both science and technology, especially that there's actually a, a, a phrase for it. There's a word for it. It's called the Matilda effect. Mm-hmm. um and it, that phrase was um coined by Margaret Rossiter who is a science historian and it's named after Matilda Gage who was a suffragist um who sort of first noticed this effect of women's contributions being overlooked or unrewarded or or even you know in some cases attributed attributed to men often the men that they worked with or the men that were who were their partners um and so Margaret Rossiter wanted to highlight that this is not just a couple of unfortunate incidents of of women's work being overlooked, that it is kind of a, it's almost like a, a bias or, or a blindness where we overlook their contributions because we don't expect to see them there. And so she encouraged people to first of all learn about the women's contributions but then to include their stories as well and to you know to rewrite their stories as it were back into the history um in order for us to do away with this bias where we think that women weren't there or that women didn't contribute or that their contributions weren't as good as the men's contributions and so that's exactly what i tried to do it whenever I found one of these stories, um, is actually dig in sufficiently to the women's biographies, although the biographies are much sparser than the biographies of men, um, and trying to rewrite their stories back into the, the big picture um, so that they can take the, their rightful place in history. And just to disabuse us of this notion that women don't do physics because they were there all along.
1: Yeah, and you found these three notable examples, or maybe even more, and... And yet, there may be so many so many women that we yeah. don't know their country. Oh, there's a few. There's quite
0: a few more. Better, <laughs> I won't. I will quite reel them off. But there's them. Right. There's many
1: more. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, how did writing this book change your relationship to particle physics?
0: Oh, good question. So, I think um, what the thing that I was trying to highlight was the role of the experimenter, and I think it it definitely shifted my confidence that. You know my my thesis was correct. You know, that the the experimenters themselves had played a huge role in our understanding of of particle physics, and that obviously, without doing experiments, um we wouldn't actually know that any of these lovely theories actually apply to the real world. So that in itself is is really important. Um, but for me, personally, it shifted things as well. I mean, it gave me a new enthusiasm for my work in the lab um because I realized that there was this fellow feeling, of um, of how it feels to work in a lab in, every day. So by reading the memoirs and autobiographies in particular, I found that it's not unusual to walk into a lab and feel frustrated or to feel that you don't understand everything that's happening or to feel like there's little gremlins in your experiment, you know, who <laughs> are ruining everything, <laughs> which is a very common feeling um, and it's one that my graduate students and I laugh about as well. And to find, for example, J.J. Thompson, uh, who discovered the electron also felt this about his experiments it was a wonderful revelation, and it's one that um, led to me feeling much more confident in my own work and I hope um, you know if people read it who who do have these sort of technical difficult day to day jobs that it might also um Engender this, this feeling of that in them of like, Oh, it's okay. It's okay to be vulnerable. It's okay that things are hard sometimes in the lab, but what you're doing is so incredibly worthwhile despite that. And that that is part of the human challenge of doing experiments is just going in there every day to do something that usually nobody in the world has ever done before. And that is going to be hard. And that's okay. And we should talk more about that. Um, and so the other. I said there was two things. So that, that was one was, um, sort of the fellow feeling and recognition, um, and sort of recommitment to my own experimental practice, as it were. Um, and then the other one for me was really this sense of belonging in the field that I walked away with having gone through this big picture journey of realizing that, okay, particle physics, physics is huge, right? There's, it must be hundreds of thousands of experiments in in physics. Particle physics is one subset or one story within that. And then my own research now, you know, using the tools from particle physics and the technologies from particle physics to affect change in society, in particular in the medical domain. I'm like, that is just, you know, this is this sort of small niche within this bigger picture journey of um, doing experiments and Uh, creating new knowledge and understanding things Um, and it's one that happens to float my boat and get me excited and so I found this yeah this real sort of sense of belonging in the community that uh, you can find what it is that excites you in this field and that might be your career but by thousands or tens of thousands of people all doing a similar thing for what floats their boat and then all of us working together, um, I think it gave me a real hope for the future. That um, that yeah, that together we can we can do this. We can do these really hard things. We can find out these really difficult to know things about our universe, and we can make
1: it useful at the same time. What are the big questions that that particle physicists are exploring now?
0: Yeah, I think that's pretty dif- pretty um, easy to summarise at the moment, actually, because we have this amazing theory called the Standard Model of Particle Physics, which was sort of put together eventually in the 1970s, um, and we now have all this amazing experimental evidence that validates this theory, and yet we know there's things beyond that. So, for example, we know that neutrinos, this ghostly type of particle, um, have a small mass, and it's not entirely clear why, and some of their properties can't be explained by our existing theory. That's a small one. The big one is the fact that all of the matter and energy that we know about only makes up about 4 to 5% of the whole mass energy content of the universe that we know from, say, cosmology. And so we know that there is something out there called dark matter. Mm-hmm. We don't know what it is, other than that it interacts gravitationally, um, and then we also know that there's something even more mysterious out there called dark energy, um, which <laughs> Does uh, sound very you'd mysterious. have to get it. Yeah, yeah, you'd have to get a cosmologist on to explain um, exactly exactly what they think that is. But there's these very broad. Um, concepts uh, that are sort of the next big journey so all the 120 years of discovery all of the things that we've learned and as impressive as that is we know that there is physics beyond that and so the next generation of experiments and people are trying to figure out you know well is dark matter a type of particle if so what would that look like and building either big underground experiments or new colliders to try and actually ascertain that so we are very far
1: from done uh, I think that's that's a pretty good place to leave it. Um, so thank you so much for talking with me, Susie. Great. Well, thanks, Carolyn. It's been really lovely. If you'd like to learn more about Dr. Susie Sheehy and her book, The Matter of Everything, we've linked to her website at scienceforthepeople.ca. On our page, you'll also find links to our show on Twitter, Facebook, and iTunes, where you can listen to past episodes, subscribe, or leave a review. If you like what you're hearing, please consider supporting the show by donating through our Patreon page. I hope you've learned something that's deepened your appreciation for the world around us and all the particles that make it up. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you again soon on Science for the People. Science for the People is listener-supported. You can find us on Patreon, where you can support us with monthly donations in any amount. Your support keeps us afloat and able to keep making great new episodes, and we thank you for it. The show is produced by Rochelle Saunders and edited by Ryan Bromsgrove. We get help with special projects from K.O. Myers. Our theme song was written and recorded by Fractal Pattern, and its title is Binary Consequence. The show is hosted by Bethany Brookshire, Anika Hazra, Marion Kilgower, and me, Rochelle Saunders.